You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. Alongside the EV-focused The Driven and another sister site, One Step Off The Grid. Joining me as usual is ITK principal David Leach. David, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well. I trust all our listeners are well and you also. And we're off to the USA today uh, where many good ideas are sourced. Well, indeed. Um, It's our very great pleasure to have with us this week uh, David Roberts. He's a very well-known writer and analyst on the energy system. He's um, on his way to Australia. We got to speak to him before he um, arrived here. Um, Many people know his writings from Grist and Vox and more recently DR Volts. And uh, he's coming to Australia, brought out by the Electrical Trade Union, um, which is really interesting, um, to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act um, and probably just explain to Australia, Australian politicians, industry and um, anybody else who cares to listen just about the impact that that has had. And um, it was a pretty fascinating discussion. So let's just get straight into it. Um, David Roberts from DR Volts. David Roberts, um, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah. Well, look, it's actually sort of great um, sort of meeting you, as it were, sort of you know, um, online or over the uh, over the airways, as it were. Um, after many years of reading your work at Grist and Vox, and uh, more recently on uh, DR Volts, um, your sort of own sort of uh, your own channel, as it were. Um, you're coming to Australia. What's what's prompted this? Uh, well, the the big uh, electrical. Union, the ETU, is bringing me over to speak to legislators and uh, media and I guess anyone else who will listen uh, about the need for something IRA-ish in Australia. Yeah, yeah. And look, this is really interesting. The Electrical Trades Union is actually inviting sort of an independent writer to, to, to come across. I think it's fantastic, actually. I think, you know, this sort of the insight that you can bring um, to those conversations. And I do note that you're speaking to the Smart Energy Council, you're speaking to parliamentarians, you're speaking to the federal minister, you're speaking to some important organisations. Um, it's quite the whirlwind. It's quite the whirlwind tour. <laughs> it's quite the whirlwind tour. That's right. Yes, yes. Oh, well, um, good luck. Um, well, if you if, if you just ask to sort of give it give it like an overwhelming or over over overriding uh, message, what would it be? Do what America's doing, or for God's sake, don't. Uh, a little bit of both of those. Um, um, I mean, I think IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, marks uh, the U.S.'s sort of decisive turn away from kind of free market free trade, neoliberalism toward something like more deliberate industrial policy. And I think the reasons that have compelled the U.S. to do that are reasons that that are compelling to any country and ought to be compelling to Australia as well. I mean, I think what what the U.S. recognized, I mean, one, one of the things I want to convey while I'm while I'm over there uh, is that this is not the, the Inflation Reduction Act was not the triumph or at least not the sole triumph of the climate movement. What happened was not the climate movement convincing the center 
to finally take climate seriously. That's not what got it over the top. What got it over the top is the recognition that there's this new global economy forming on the back of, um, you know, AI and biotechnology and crucially clean energy. And for the last 10 years, while the U.S. has been sort of mucking about with austerity, uh, uh, China has been investing heavily and deliberately in, you know, buying up the supply chains for key minerals, key technologies uh, in that new global economy. And now the U.S., uh, you know, the sort of premise of the free trade world that all, all workers in the U.S. would benefit from the cheap goods that came from global free trade. So it didn't really matter where the jobs were. That has obviously not paid off. So part of what the IRA is, is a deliberate attempt to craft the U.S.'s place in this new global economy through direct investments in hmm. jobs and new industries. It's, it, it's a turn away from a kind of obsession with uh, fiddling with markets, I think. And so, and so I think uh, the Australia, you know, for, for all the same reasons, Australia needs to take its fate in its hands and get active finding its place in that new economy. Yeah, it's interesting because when, um, after Joe Biden got um, elected, um, you were writing in Vox, and I think you were a little bit skeptical about, you know, how much of a Green New Deal he would bring to us to, to the US, how committed he would be to the climate equation. And then you had people like Joe Manchin sitting in the way of anything that sort of sounded <laughs> reasonable. And they kind of got clever, at least that's the way I see it. I mean, you know, um, um, they kind of got clever by sort of painting it as well, what it's called now, the Inflation Reduction Act, basically. You bring in this investment, you bring in this local manufacturing, you're going to get more jobs, you're going to get costs going down, and that kind of what got over the line. So from the messaging point of view, I know this is something that Dave was interested in following up later, and we'll obviously go into the details of the IRA, but that just sounded like pretty clever way of actually doing this. Yeah, yeah, this is a this is a, an investment in US jobs and manufacturing primarily. First, that was the top line and climate was was down second or third. And this uh, you know, what I think is telling, what I think is a very telling fact and I'm not sure how much this is appreciated outside the US. You know, when the Democrats came to control Congress and the presidency, the 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 initial <laughs> expression of the democratic agenda, what they wanted to get through this reconciliation process in Congress was the Build Back Better Act, which had, you know, child care and, and health care and improvements in the social safety net and voting rights uh, reform, blah, on and on and on, and climate stuff. And over time, that stuff got whittled down and whittled away by these sort of centrist Democratic senators, Manchin and Cinema and, and so on. Whittled and whittled and whittled and whittled, and almost everything got chopped out of it except for the climate stuff. The climate stuff survived, not unscathed, but remarkably little scathed through that entire process. So to me, and it got 50, 50 Democratic votes at the, at the end of that process. So to me, that says something interesting about the place that climate, or, the, or rather the place that clean energy plays in the in the, the sort of political firmament right now it's one of the few things that can hold the entire democratic side together which i think shows that everybody understands like we need to we need to get active here we need to we we need to bring these industries along on purpose with with direct mm. investments yeah 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 and and, and so they're kind of starting to address the climate situation by sort of focusing on jobs and inflation and things like that i mean um 
is there going to be any appetite for doing any more on climate? Um, how, for instance, are the heat waves that's been sweeping across America <laughs> and a lot of other places being, I mean, how are they being discussed? Is it very much still partisanized? Are people sort of saying, shit, <laughs> we better do something uh, more? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, the, in the U.S., I mean, I take no, I take no joy in reporting this, but in the U.S., the partisanship is stronger and more cemented than. I mean, the the pandemic didn't didn't dent it. <laughs> you know, uh, climate is not going to dent it. A storm or a heat wave is not going to dent it. I don't know what could dent it at this point. So, I mean, one of the key insights I feel like on the left in the run up to. Democrats taking control in 2020 and, and passing the IRA was that uh, it, it that basically Obamacare was the model. You can do what you can do with only Democratic votes because you're just not going to get any help from the other side. So so whatever you put together has to be able to get every single Democrat on board, which is an incredibly high bar, incredibly difficult. And so and and so that was part of why the the IRA. And the Chips Act are so are, are all carrots and no sticks, as as they say. It's because this is all stuff that everyone can agree on. So it's mostly just like candy and handouts, you know, which everybody loves. That's why it's that's why it looks the way it does. Yeah. So, uh, David, uh, I guess the, that's the that's the real point. Uh, it's unlikely to be changed uh, if there was a, a change of uh, uh, president. Say. Well, I meant to, I meant to add. Um, because of the process it went through, this obscure process called budget reconciliation is the way the bill passed. It's a long and tedious story about stupid aspects of the U.S. system of government. But basically, all you can do through a budget reconciliation bill is budget-relevant stuff, which means um, payouts or taxes. So that cuts off the sort of third leg of the climate policy stool, which is standards, you know, sort of sector by sector standards and, and, and mandates and, you know, targets and things like that. And the, and the Biden administration is coming along behind trying to do some of that work with its executive, um, executive action with the EPA and, you know, setting um, carbon standards for power plants and cars and things like that. It is trying to get some of that third yep. leg of the stool back. That can, that can be undone, but uh, I guess the point is... Yes. That, that, well, I mean, all of it can be undone if we want to get down to the nuts and it bolts. It can be, but the point is the incentives are so strong. And uh, when I was looking at it, there's already been over in $200 billion uh, of announcements, of investment announcements, uh, new capacity uh early plans and announcements total somewhere between 90 and 180 gigawatts if uh, you're uh, looking at numbers. Uh, obviously not all of that will be built, including a lot in Republican states like Texas, but I, I want to stay away from the politics. The electricity prices that are going to be offered under this, uh, according to a fantastic uh, discussion that, uh, that or documentation from Ben Haley from Evolved Energy that, that we talked about last year, it's going to be somewhere in the order of US $15 a megawatt hour to consumers. I mean, that's, that's a very strong lobby group to keep it all going, isn't it, really? Yes. I mean, it is a grand experiment in political economy. The question is, if you, in, if you induce enough investment and enough to sort of direct benefit to these areas, can you blunt 
opposition, basically? Can you blunt opposition at least enough to keep it in place, at least enough to keep it going, right? And I don't, we don't know the answer to that yet. I mean, you would think intuitively with billions of dollars flowing into these states, they wouldn't want to cut that off. But as I said, you really can never underestimate you can never underestimate partisanship in the in the United States system. Let, let, let's get away from partisanship for a moment uh, and talk about another issue that's very relevant to us here in Australia this year, uh, and that is the uh, nimbyism or social license kind of issues once we get down to the nuts and bolts of building lots more transmission and you know impacted communities and such like uh what's what's the messaging is there any national messaging on that is it a state-by-state -state approach and how do you think that's going to play out well that is the top worry on everybody's mind <laughs> that is the, the number one you, you know everybody's got this sort of list of things that could screw up uh the ira and and at the top of that list is is nimbyism you know, and it's a it's a very complicated and multifarious problem. There's different kinds of nimbyism at different levels on different subjects. There's housing, the housing crisis, which is a huge issue in Australia too. I know it's a huge issue in all the big American cities, and that's definitely cross partisan. And that's you know that looks like a state by state battle. Then there's nimbyism on on building out renewable energy. There's a lot of that cropping up in rural states uh, in the U.S. There's a lot of laws getting passed against new utility-scale uh, wind and solar, even battery installations. Uh, that's a huge worry. It's just not, it, 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 there's not a ton you can do nationally. There is a national discussion about permitting and trying to s speed up the permitting process and slow down or at least uh, you know reduce the sort of uh, bureaucratic burden on things but there's limited tools available at the federal level and there's a limited it's not clear that anything else is going to be able to get through congress there's some stuff biden can do executively on, executively on that but uh, to a large extent that's a state by state grinding sort of battle <laughs> that, that 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 said uh one of the things i've most admired over my many many years of studying the usa and visiting there i don't know 30 or 40 times uh is that the uh, in america in the states you can come up with good ideas new innovative ways of doing things so i, I look forward to an approach to social license david your your long experience uh must give you a lot of expertise in messaging uh, what do you think is the best way to build both a local and a national consensus? What are the sort of, uh, who's, who's an example of, 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 of um, organizations, if you like, that do messaging well? And what is it that makes them do it well? Well, I think, the, <laughs> I, I, I wish I was an expert in this. I wish I did have a better answer to this question. I think that the lack of coordinated messaging from the administration and, and its allies around the IRA and chips is one of the big flaws that I would that I would warn other countries against. You need a story around this stuff so that when people see the anecdotes here and there of this investment or that investment, you know, this new job created, whatever, they have a, a way to tie it together. And I don't see anybody doing that particularly well in the U.S., especially with an election approach, and, and that's beginning to swamp everything else. So, I mean, if you look at the polls, 
it's it's disappointing how few Americans have heard of the, the IRA or know what it does, and, you know, or know that or know that Joe Biden is responsible for the biggest investments in climate uh, in, in U.S. history. So there's a real dearth of good messaging. But what I think convinced the sort of elite class to get this legislation over the finish line is some mix of competition with China and reshoring of manufacturing and jobs. So jobs, 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 bringing jobs to America, investing in the industries of the future, revitalizing areas of the country that were hollowed out by, by, um, you know, free trade, the, the, the free trade mania of the eighties and nineties and, and 2000s. Um, it's, it's the industrial base stuff, I think, that, that moves the relevant people. So what's the potential of that then to actually cross those partisan lines? I mean, I know that sort of David didn't want to sort of get on the partisan sort of um, thing, but I mean, it's just so fundamental, it seems to me, to sort of polit politics and policies in, in the US right now. Um, and um, I'm, I guess what you're sort of saying is that, you know, that message has got to get through to have any chance of that being accepted either at a state level or a federal level by, um, by Republicans, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I would love to, believe me, I would love nothing more than to not think about partisanship for a while. <laughs> it, is, it is the looming fact of American politics over and over and over again. It shapes, it shapes everything. I will say that there was the, infra, the, the infra, Infrastructure Act and the CHIPS Act both had bipartisan support. I do think there is some bipartisan support for, especially, especially, I think, when you frame things in terms of China's ahead of us. You know, China, this this dastardly communist regime is dominating the materials we need for our future prosperity, and, that, and that's a national security threat. So we've got to, we've got to bring a lot of that stuff back on shore and at, at the very least create a supply chain of friendly countries able, you know, so we have some resiliency, some redundancy in our supply chains. That, I think, that message gets across party lines, I mm. think, somewhat. Yeah, and, and, and they're a nice opportunity for Australia. But, but before I get to Australia and, and, and what we might do to sort of, um, sort, of, sort of link in, I guess, with that, um, with the, um, the IRA, as you call it, um, you mentioned mm -hmm. battery. You Uncle know, IRA. Yeah, you, you mentioned Uncle IRA. You mentioned, you mentioned NIMBYism and, and, and you mentioned battery storage. And I'm just going, huh? Uh, what's going on there? I mean, people don't like, I mean, I, mean, I just can't think of anything sort of modular and sort of sitting in containers than, than batteries, but maybe someone's got a good reason <laughs> I mean, to... <laughs> there is, uh, you know, there is a, an organized and well-funded effort afoot in in rural areas to rally opposition to any big clean energy projects. Basically, is the long and short of it. So they're, you know, they'll anything they'll they'll rally around farmland, or they'll say it makes noise, or they'll say, you know, it ruins the character of the area. Whatever they'll 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 It'll boil the cherries. You know, anything that takes a lot of land. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we're 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 seeing that in Australia too. Um, you know, and uh, we're seeing that on transmission lines and renewable energy zones and um and, and things. So yes. So this is the, the this is the thing. It it's 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 an organised opposition. So something I don't quite understand, and I have some uh, 
very, very conservative uh, people who are friends of mine, uh, but who just simply don't get that wind, you know, if it can't be coal, it has to be nuclear. And to me, it seems that they don't like wind and solar just because the left does it, is, it likes it. Is, uh, is, is that what it is, really? I mean, if the left likes it, then it must be, we must oppose it. Is that what it boils down to in the USA? I mean, I think that's, I think that's probably a lot of it. I mean, it's not just obviously aesthetic or ideological. The, the, the fossil fuel industry pays Republicans quite a bit of money to, to, you know, to adopt those uh, uh, positions. I mean, it's very, the, the, the disposition of the fossil fuel industry has become more partisan along with everything else in the U.S. in past decades. And it's now pretty sort of explicitly um, you know, uh, pretty explicitly supportive of the Republican Party. So even that is... is... That, that said, I mean, if there's one thing in terms of lobbying and that's happened in the past five years, it's that whereas everyone used to be in favour of coal and fossil fuels, now there's an absolutely massive lobby from like electric vehicle manufacturers and the clean energy industry to, to make progress. I mean, there's lobbying on both sides now. And I, Yes, I, would... I mean... I. I think one interesting anecdote uh, you know, that, that, that that's relevant here is you know everybody knows that sort of Manchin was the final vote. He's wavering. You know he's a he's a sort of classic sort of business friendly centrist, whatever you want to call it. And so everybody's calling him right on this last week that determined whether the bill was going to get passed. All these people are calling him, and I can assure you, it wasn't like the Sierra Club or whatever that got through to Manchin and 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 reached him. It was there were oil and gas people calling him because they wanted IRA to pass because they wanted those giant uh, green hydrogen subsidies. You know, like Bill Gates called Joe Manchin and pleaded with him to sign it because Bill Gates is investing in a battery company that was going to open a giant manufacturing plant in West Virginia. And it was not going to open that plant if IRA didn't pass. So it was, you're, you're, you're extremely right that even before it passed, it generated uh, moneyed constituencies that threw their elbows around and 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 had some power. Yes, yeah, so one one hopes that grows, you know, o over time. Hmm. So in Australia, we've had a little discussion here about um, the impact of the of, of Uncle Ira um, and on Australian investment. Um, some particularly um, Australia, um, well, when it was Australia's richest man, but he just got divorced. So that. Um, strikes them down a bit. Um, well, he's getting separated. Um, he's Andrew Forrest. Um, I don't know whether you've actually heard of him, but um, he's a, um, a big talker on green hydrogen, but but many others, they're talking about, you know, we are, th th there's supposed to be a wall of capital out there, but it kind of seems to be falling towards the US. And so they're saying, you know, let's do more in Australia. There is a $2 billion hydrogen head start, which has been announced by the federal government in the last budget. That's probably going to go dis be distributed amongst three or four sort of, you know, reasonably big but not huge hydrogen projects in Australia. What more might they be thinking of doing? I mean, are you going to be sort of bringing specific policy advice? Um, what sort of things will you be sort of um, telling the politicians and, um, and the industry while you're here? Well, I'm leery of telling other countries <laughs> what to do. I don't think the U.S. I don't think the U.S. has you know, uh, uh, earn that right. But I will say, um, I mean, one of the one of the signal features of IRA, I think one of its best features is its sort of kind of small C Catholic um, spreading of the love across the entire 
clean energy value chain? Because I think t- there's a still a lot of unanswered questions about how things are going to play out. I mean, I mean, we, I don't know how much you want to get into green hydrogen, but I, the how how big green hydrogen is going to be in the end, I think, is a huge question. And there's lots of people making very very big bets on it. I think somewhat out ahead of their skis. So I think one of the good things about Iris is it spreads, you know, it's, it spins on electrification, it spins on resilience, it spins on storage, it's, you know, it really spreads its bets across the whole, uh, across the whole landscape, which I think is right. Just let's see, you know, let's give, stimulate everything and see what pops up. I mean, I think the green hydrogen subsidies in Ira are so enormous <laughs> yeah I, I i think that i think there's an even more important message more important than the boost to domestic manufacturing which in truth in my opinion australia can never hope to uh, emulate and that is that it results essentially in lower electricity prices for consumers big and small what it is is a transfer of uh, a transfer from uh, the government by way of tax costs lost tax revenue through to lower electricity bills it does that indirectly by the by the tax credits and the other thing it does is generally the tax credit schemes as opposed to what we have a renewable energy certificate scheme it does provide a level of certainty you can argue about whether it's theoretically good but you know when you announce uh, a new wind farm that you're going to get this level of tax credits right uh, which and the tax credits have really been the i mean even going back decades in the u.s if you want to know what policies are most materially responsible for the most renewable energy steel in the ground it's probably tax credits federal tax credits all along i mean they sort of chug along in the background and never really got killed. They had bipartisan, sort of quiet bipartisan support for for decades, even before this. So we know they work. I mean, it's a it's a blunt weapon and a blunt tool in some ways, but we know it works. To, to... Yes. Yes, yes. Saving consumers money is a huge, huge piece of this. This is why I think, I mean, to me, this is one of the fundamental shifts in the whole climate fight since I started it is now we have a technology story that's very forward looking and proactive and and optimistic, like we can electrifying everything or close to everything, especially at the household level, the household consumer level is going to be cheaper and better and more comfortable and work better. It's just a, like a, it's a better world. And I think having a story that starts with individual citizens like that is new to the climate movement. It's new to the clean energy movement to be able to say, we want to do something for you. That's going to be of your material benefit, you know, immediately. And I think, and if you you can go one level up from that too, and this might not be something public facing so much as you something you talk with policymakers about, but I one of the whole aspects of the clean energy transition that I think has been under uh, discussed and underemphasized is a huge piece of inflation, which is dominating. You know, been dominating headlines for for years now. A huge piece of inflation is energy costs, energy inflation, because fossil fuel prices fluctuate wildly and periodically create crises and and crashes and we're just so used to it we just sort of think like that's life that's how the economy is 
but but um, renewable energy yeah, prices yeah, yeah, yeah. don't don't swing. You know what they're going to be but, in well, ten but, years, and twenty years, and thirty years, and that eliminating that huge source of inflation, I think, has macroeconomic effects that have not really been celebrated. Well, it, it can be disinflation. It can be disinflation as well. But certainly, one of the uh, underlying premises of the original energy wende in in Germany was that it would fix and remove the risk of higher prices. But I want to emphasise that although it's individual consumers that vote uh, and they appreciate lower electricity prices, that's households. In the end, 60% of electricity goes to business uh, and industrial use here in Australia. And showing those guys how they're going to be able to lock in lower prices forever is going to be great for the underlying manufacturing industry, even with- lower and just lower and, and just predictable. I mean, it's just so much more predictable. And that opens up a lot of opportunities for business, I think, when they have that stability. Well, it's interesting. I mean, Rio Tinto, um, the head of Rio Tinto, um, global mining giant, made clear this past week that um, if they don't get to 100% renewables or close to it by the end of the end of the decade, and or at least have visibility over it, then they're going to need to close down their refineries because um, without cheap power, they can't compete on costs and they can't compete in emissions. So it's kind of like the kind of like the strong message. David, I'd like to sort of ask a couple of questions because I'm just kind of interested in some of the sort of the trending things in the US and um, I'm just wondering about electric vehicles. Um, we thought we were behind in um, electric vehicles in Australia because we, you know, we just had hardly any on the road. You could hardly get any. But I actually noticed that we've got a bigger share of electric vehicles in our new car market than the new guys. So we're at about 7% and you guys, I think, are just under that. You've got Tesla. Um, what is the view now in the US about electric vehicles? Um, I know that GM and Ford are struggling with it, but you've got I mean, what's the view on Tesla? Um, does it go down partisan lines again? <laughs> uh, it's a real interesting and, and, and somewhat malleable, I think, time for EVs in the U.S. I mean, I, I, we're nearing this, you know, this sort of famous inflection point in the S-curve when things start going up quickly. Like, I think we're already getting there and and they're taking off. And they're becoming more and more mainstream. But at the same time, there's this backlash. There's... You know, I've noticed it in, in, in the U.S. press, all these sort of like, maybe EVs aren't as good as you thought they were, you know, <laughs> articles, tons and tons of these articles. And in the U.K. press, I know like the U.K. press runs those articles obsessively. So there's a real, yeah. because, because <laughs> they, they had a great, they, sorry, they had a great one last week in the Daily Mirror about this electric vehicle that um, caught, got flooded and couldn't move afterwards, but it turned out it was a diesel car. But anyway, <laughs> Yes. I mean, they're goofy, but but there's a reason they're they're scared because I think EVs are going to be the front edge of reductions in in oil demand. You know, like they're going to be the hammer that that starts knocking down oil demand in the macro in the big in the big picture and that's uh you know, and I think uh, I think the oil industry knows that once you teeter over that line from growing to just kind of plateauing business looks a lot different. Your business prospects look a lot different. So I think they're they're scared. But in a sense, it's like everybody knows it's all over. It's all about timing, right? Everybody's arguing over timing. Everybody knows this is coming at this point. Yeah, yeah. And what about, I mean, in one of the big debates in Australia, um, and look, it's, it's, it's madness as far as we're concerned because we don't have a nuclear industry here, but we've got a whole partisan sort of political um, discussion about nuclear, small nuclear reactors. You know, they're going to be the saver of Australia. I mean, of all the countries in the world where it could possibly make sense, this is not one of them. Um, but you might be closer to, I mean, you know, 
America has a strong nuclear industry. It's got a lot of nuclear reactors. It hasn't been building very many recently, and the ones they have been building have been pretty delayed and very much overpriced. But you've got a couple of people, rich people, investing so presumably in this technology. What's your assessment of it? Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't think. Let me put it this way: Nuclear people often say in the U.S. if we just fundamentally revised the way we regulate nuclear power and we're not quite as paranoid about safety as we are. I mean, we're arguably over paranoid about safety relative to the historical track records of these technologies, you know, like coal is slaughtering people in the tens of thousands. So, uh, uh, and, and we sort of revolution and, and government took over in electricity markets to to a large extent and built a bunch of this old industrial technology infrastructure that we used to have and don't have anymore then nuclear could flourish in the US and be relatively cheap and i would and i just say that like maybe that's true but that's just wildly unlikely to happen i just don't think it's i mean just if you're just a betting uh, betting on the odds so so no i don't think i think smrs thus far in the US have been stumbling on their face like everything else the nuclear industry tries to do it's all turning out to be more expensive and slower than everybody thinks and 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 i just think there are you know like you have like enhanced geothermal finally getting off the ground commercially which gets you um your geographical flexibility it gets you your baseload if you want it it gets you your dispatchability if you want it you might even get you some storage it gets you your small footprint your land footprint if you want it i just think um and that is so much smaller and more modular and more able to build and learn and, and get cheaper i think than nuclear i would bet on on that before i would bet on nuclear yeah, yeah, I, I saw you sort of writing, and, and and you had a podcast about that just recently. So, so what is enhanced geothermal? We 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 spent um, a whole bunch of money about a decade ago on what's called sort of hot rocks geothermal, which is trying to sort of plug into sort of you know stuff that's five kilometers down, superheated rocks, and just the whole chemical reaction, the whole process of just getting that to the top. It sounded easy, but it wasn't, and it kind of gave up after a while. Um, so, tell us about. <laughs> Yeah, that's just that's traditional geothermal uh, is just you go to where there is volcanic or activity beneath the surface, the, you know, geographic plates scraping against one another. And that creates these fissures underground, which get very hot. And so if you run water through them, you can bring it back up and use the hot water to run a steam turbine. The, the, the disadvantage, as you say, is those those features are naturally occurring so they're not everywhere they're they're relatively rare on the earth's surface and every project becomes a little bit uh, bespoke because there's different land characterizations there are different chemicals down there etc what enhanced geothermal systems are is instead of going out to find the fissures where they're naturally occurring you just create them yourself that's what fracking is that's what natural gas fracking is it quite literally borrows technology from fracking and pr and, and, and um, pushes water underground at very high pressure and it fractures the rock and then they can drill horizontally which they also borrowed directly from natural gas fracking and create those fissures a series of fissures along this uh, um, uh, along this line along this um, horizontal drilling hole and so you can have a bunch of fractured fields and so you can run water so you have a lot of surface area 
So then you have your, you're basically creating your own geological feature there. And then you run water through it and it comes up and runs a, uh, runs a turbine. So, but you, but you can do this almost anywhere, very much unlike traditional geothermal. And the other thing they're trying to do is, is standardize and modularize the drills and the, te- and the technologies so that they can get on learning curves so that they can be repeatable, buildable in a factory. You know, you can learn quickly and make them cheaper quickly. They're trying to get geothermal itself on a learning curve. Well, it sounds interesting. It sounds a little bit like the hot rocks things that we had about a decade ago, but I'm, 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 I'm guessing it's not quite as deep as... Um, um... It had to wait basically until, until the oil and gas industry perfected fracking. <laughs> hydraulic <laughs> fracturing yeah and hydraulic fracturing only works in certain areas because the uh, seams that it uh, fractures have to be flat to plates right if uh, we, um, uh, but on this technology probably doesn't necessarily depend quite so much on flat top plates uh, because you're not really interested you're not really interested in the gas you're interested in the fracture itself right you're not looking for hydrocarbons so you can do it anywhere you can, you, you, you don't have to go where hydrocarbons are. and also because you don't have to interact with hydrocarbons the fluid involved can just be basically water like there's a little bit of like lubricant in it but it's almost it's mostly just water so the there's fluid, no the fluids aren't that bad I, I think I may have told this story but I attended a uh, lunch at one of at one of my investment banking firms I worked at uh, where we had um, Halbert, Halliburton uh, over uh, talking about uh, fracking and there was very senior fund managers, fantastic wine on the table as there <laughs> always is, fantastic food. Uh, and before we went, we all had a toast uh, and, a, and, a, and a bottle of fracking fluid was passed around <laughs> and about 90% of the people there drank some and they're still here today as far as I know. Well, let's just say whatever, the, whatever worries the public might have about water pollution do not apply in this case. <laughs> okay. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. And, and I think that the, the coolest thing about it, I meant to add this, the coolest thing about it is the skills and technologies transferred directly from oil and gas. So this is a this is a a way out of oil and gas for staff, for people. Uh, the skills transferred directly, which is something you can't say about solar and wind. Well, it might be able to say about offshore wind and things like that, like, you know, with offshore gas industry. But hey, look, I just yeah, got... Yeah, a little bit, a little bit offshore. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, I've just got two last questions, and but um, I've forgotten one of them already. Um, <laughs> what was that? Yeah, no, just about the um, the grid operators in the US. And look, it's um, it's not really a quick question, but it's um, in Australia, it's, it's in, in Australia, we're starting to see, um, you know, 10 years ago, the idea of 100% renewables, you know, forget about it, not going to happen, you know, impossible. Now we're kind of seeing all the institutions and, and the bodies getting together and trying to figure out, there's still great debates about, you know, how you manage that and the electrical and engineering principles and the mechanics of it all and everything like that. Have we got there yet in in the US? I mean, I know your grid is sort of split up into about three or four or five different things. I, I think there's talk about maybe linking some of them. I don't know how easy that is. Is there kind of different philosophies about, you know, the pace of the transition? Is it just like a complete, you know, is it just a complete mess or is it um, is there a coordinated effort to, to move on? to get there uh it's a complete mess i would say (laughs) (laughs) sadly it's a complete mess i mean these are island you know the regions are islanded from one another the grids are somewhat islanded from one another and just the 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 practices currently in place whereby we get renewable energy onto the grid are just clogged and slow and in no way ready fit for the work we're trying to 
get them to do. And the way we build transmission is in no way uh, prepared for the amount of transmission we need and, and especially interregional transmission. So no, I mean, this is one of the big areas for reform is how grid operators work, how um, uh, transmission planning is done. You know, they're trying to, um, they're trying to bring the West of the US into an RTO. It currently isn't in a, a regional transmission organization. They're trying to do the same in the South. And then I think they're trying at FERC to make interconnection easier. They're trying at FERC, uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, to, to make um, transmission planning, interregional transmission planning somewhat easier, but really you need legislation for that stuff. And we sort of botched our chance to get legislation on that stuff. Um, I've probably just got one final. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I've got one quick, you, very you quick go, David. question. Just yeah, just about rooftop solar. I mean, US uh, installation costs are about twice those in Australia. Last time I looked from behind the meter, largely, I think, because uh, the electric utilities just make it harder than it uh, than it is in Australia, where it's a two at one two at one quick phone call. Um, do you see much change progress in installation costs and behind the meter? Uh, not as much as I would like. And this is like, this is one of the things I feel like, um, it has peculiar to me as I look into Australia, like Australian rooftop solar is this incredible success story that I feel like you ought to be bragging more about. Like I would love the, I would love for the U S to be able to learn from Australia about how to bring down those soft costs. I mean, when I say that we're slow to build things, I mean, that is just true at every level in the U S from the neighborhood level to the national level. Like every institution is too slow and that's true with solar too. And it raises the costs, as you say, by like two or three X from what it costs in Australia. And that's not, I mean, I see some like efforts at reform sort of like at the, at the municipal or state level, but nothing like, I think that some sort of national conversation or national solution about it. Look, I've got one last question and look, it's probably a de de depressing, but entirely predictable one. Um, you know, when we look at US news, it's Trump, 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 <laughs> Trump this, Trump that, um, you know, he's running again. Oh, um, I mean, I mean, how scary is that? I mean, how real is the prospect that he might one day be president again? And I mean, look, I don't really want to go into the details of what the hell that means. But um, yeah, it must be just an extraordinary situation sitting in the US just just watching this happen right in front of your eyes. Yeah, I can't. I, I, I can't. There's no uh, soft peddling this. I mean, he has been explicit at this point. The entire right, the Republican establishment has been explicit. They're explicitly drawing up this plan to dismantle all the climate things that Biden has done and dismantle the agencies that engage in those climate things and uh, lots of the agencies and departments that Biden has built basically to strip the federal government apparatus to its, to its parts. Um, and, and and reverse everything. So it's not it's not speculation what would happen if Trump won or if any Republican won in twenty twenty four. They are very open about it, and it would be utterly disastrous for climate. And um, you know, if you look at polls, they're pretty tight. They're pretty tight. They're pretty close to even. And remember, because of various stupid features of the U.S. electoral system. Democrats have to get more votes, substantially more votes, to get their candidate into office as president. So, 
Um, you know, tight, even polls do not augur well. There's a lot of time between now and November. Who knows what could happen? He's got, he might be in jail. I mean, who knows? Really, who knows anything? But, but no one should feel sanguine at all about this. Well, maybe instead of uh, taking an overnight bag to Australia, you can take a whole suitcase and sort of leave that there here. Yeah, and just in case I might, need I might want to stay. <laughs> Absolutely. Bring the family over. Look, David, it's been great having you on this podcast. Um, we really do appreciate your time. And it's been fascinating getting your insights into um, what's happening over there and, and what we could do over here. And um, we wish you all the best for your trip. Um, look forward to catching up, um, catching up when you're here. All right. I'll see you, see you in Australia. Thanks, Dave. And that was uh, David Roberts uh, from DR Volts um, joining us on the Energy Insiders podcast. Um, we're just going to take a very short break and we'll be back in a moment. You're back with the Energy Insiders podcast, Giles Parkinson and David Leach. Um, David, um, Look, pretty interesting discussion with David David there. Um, Biden has probably been underappreciated just for the sheer impact and significance of this scheme. I guess there's two questions that sort of pose themselves for Australia. Should we go chasing it? And if we do go chasing it, how do we chase it? <laughs> uh, you know, do we have do we have handouts? Do we have what I think's being proposed in the um, hydrogen sort of catch up or whatever it's called um or, or, or boost the two billion dollar hydrogen boost or some sort of tax incentives or um is it going to be more handouts um and, and should that be applied to the broader issue about the rollout of wind solar and storage in australia uh, i do think the i've thought for many years that the usa's tax driven approach through the pr production tax credits and the investment tax credits and now the ira has a lot to recommend it for the reasons that dave said uh, and that's primarily that it shifts the, uh, it lowers electricity prices. It's the government that pays rather than other electricity consumers. With our system in Australia, with the, uh, uh, the RET renewable energy target and its uh, sister, the residential SREC as it's called, small renewables, what happens is that the cost of those, which uh, the uh, retailers have to buy some, and they pass that cost on to in their electricity bills to big and small customers. So uh, although it's a great thing, it does increase the cost of electricity directly to consumers. Not in a big way, but it does increase the cost. By contrast, giving, uh, getting rid of that and having a tax credit system essentially means the government uh, reduces the price of electricity to consumers by by giving these tax deductions. And I, I think that um, it's very hard for anyone to argue against cheaper electricity. Uh, and for that reason alone, it's a system that should be considered as, a, as an alternative to an extension of the RET. And I hope the government, when it's considering all these policy moves, does think long and hard about what's going to be in place for the next five years. Before we get off Dave Roberts-Giles, and speaking too long as usual, I was also very interesting to hear about his synthetic geothermal uh, because uh, we could do that, uh, although it would uh, in Queensland maybe or maybe out in the Cooper Basin, which is a long way from anywhere I do know, uh, where you can uh, drill down and drill a horizontal well and pump water through and have it heated up and come back. I, I think that was an interesting technology. Obviously, years probably take as long as nuclear to get going, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's still interesting. Yeah, no, it is pretty interesting. Um, absolutely. Um, look, um, we spent a lot of time with David and it was fantastic to do so. And he's 
going to be appearing in various forums, the Clean Energy Council, the Smart Energy Council, um, in Parliament, um, at um, at the Spark Club in Sydney next week, um, and various other sort of things. So do try and catch up with them. And if you don't catch up with them and want to read what he says or listen to what he says, he's got a very good um, podcast, DR Vaults, and he's got his own um, column on Substack. Um, other news this week, David, um, a quick walk around. Um, Energy Australia, first of the big utilities to report its results. A um, couple of interesting things. One, it still hasn't got any closer, well, it's getting closer to making decisions about some big batteries um, to partially replace your lawn and Mount Piper. As we mentioned, I think last week, it's actually seeking to move um, some of the infrastructure for the proposed Lake Lyle pumped hydro. Um, its profits are slightly better than last year, but last year it had massive write-downs of sort of um, hedging, um, hedges that went the wrong way. Uh, financial instruments, um, but it's sort of still struggling to to make money. Uh, yes, indeed. Still looking for a partner, CLP is in Australia, and like the other big gentailers, still uh, yet to commit, uh, in my opinion, to fully decarbonising the operations. But uh, again, as we've discussed previously, because coal generation uh, is very profitable just at the moment, um, th th there's no real incentive for them to hurry along. And just before we hop off that, I note that the ACCC has extended its time for looking into the uh, takeover of Origin. Uh, yes. Uh, does that mean anything? Not necessarily. Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think it does. I just note it's another month till we find out. I, I suppose the other big news was, as Chris Bowen uh, talked about, uh, the capacity investment scheme um, sort of headline draft document is out there. Yeah, no, that's right, yes. And um, a couple of interesting things about that, the way they sort of plan to structure it um, kind of comes with a sort of floor price and a ceiling price, which is sort of slightly different from a contract for difference and slightly different as well from the New South Wales sort of Altessa structure, which is essentially just a floor price, at least that's the way I understand it. Um, but interesting just talking about... Um, 26 gigawatt hours of storage they want to have um, done by 2030, which is a reasonable amount. So six gigawatts of um, storage multiplied by four hours of storage. And of course, um, that will depend on the individual needs of the states. Um, still scratching their heads about how to get pumped hydro into that equation mainly because it takes so long for pumped hydro to get built and because it faces sort of cost pressures on the civil engineering component. Um, so batteries seem to be very well placed, particularly in the early um, auctions, which are happening right now in New South Wales and later on this year in Victoria and South Australia, mainly because the pressing need for capacity is within that five-year period before pumped hydro could possibly get built. So um, you think we're going to see a lot more batteries around the place, and we're seeing plenty of them at the moment. We are, and uh, note the Smart Energy Council is having a storage uh, forum in, in Melbourne uh, uh, this coming Friday, so we can talk some more about that there. Equally, the social license issue is becoming a big deal, and uh, I'm pleased, I mean, amongst things that are going on there, Queensland's doing a review of wind farm um, uh, planning requirements, uh, but I was pleased myself to see that the new, the Tamworth, the famous Tamworth business chamber, uh, has got away from country music and is having a breakfast briefing on maximising regional benefits from renewables. So just to point out that whilst Barney's is in New England and he has his supporters, uh, there's a lot of people in the New England era, uh, era that see the uh, benefit of, uh, of, of renewable energy, which I'm keen to point out. 
Yeah, no, that's interesting. So that breakfast has actually been held on the first day, on the same day as the Bush Summit, which is um, being held in Tamworth, which is sponsored by the Murdoch Media and General Reinhardt, and appears set to be used by Barnaby as a platform for his sort of latest campaign for um, against wind, solar, and storage. Some of which has gone a bit damn crazy, um, particularly in some of the um, the the media platforms who should know better, but we actually know that they don't know better, or deliberately so. And um, there's been a bit of a Barney going on about the sort of the uh, the system costs of wind, solar and storage and how that applies and how it's represented in the integrated system plan and the CSIRO and AEMO gen cost things and there's a whole bunch of people out there saying well this is proof that renewables in fact are not cheaper than anything else but it's um, it's gotten all a bit silly and seems to be based on a deliberate misunderstanding uh, about sort of how the system operates and what's already there and how you sort of um, deal with sunk costs but um, not quite as completely um, crazy as some of the other things that we've seen over the last couple of weeks on social media just against wind turbines um, just for the record they don't need to be driven by fossil fuels as they turn around. The wind is capable of spinning those turbines and generating electricity. Just like to put that out there. Um, anyway, but um, Charles, I don't, I don't think on this podcast, uh, you, you know, we we aim at, at people who write and believe that kind of stuff. Uh, we aim to add value. We do a lot of work, you and I, between us, if we do nothing else, to try and get right across the industry and the facts. I have the greatest of respect for AEMO. It's, it's far from beyond criticism. Uh, the ISP itself is, is not beyond criticism. There's quite a lot of things you could pick on. They only use 10 years of half-hourly weather data, for instance, and I think they only do things to the 10% level of probability instead of the 99, 1%. But... Uh, having said all of that, uh, uh, and they, it's 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 a great job that they do. I, I, I will. There's a lot more to be said, but it's not the kind of stuff you've been talking about. <laughs> well, I was just trying to entertain myself, actually, and just sort of vent my spleen because my inbox just gets filled up with this rubbish all the time. So um, I get pretty annoyed by it. Um, look, a lot of other things we could talk about, um, but we probably don't have time to today. But we'll try and get back to in coming weeks. Um, um, transmissions or concerns about sort of costs and sort of Hume Link and Marinus and that uh, um, debate about VNI West, but um, also to note that um, Energy Co in New South Wales is more or less confirmed now that it seeks to double the size of the Central West Arana Zone in in New South Wales. And look, this seems to be what seems to be happening here is a lot of work behind the scenes seems to be happening um, to try and make sure that the capacity is there to allow the coal-fired generators to um, retire as planned. Although, you know, it still might be a bit squeaky bum and um, some interesting decisions to be made. But there seems to be a lot of work going in the background, you know, with these tenders, tripling the size of the um, firming capacity auction, which is effectively the first part of the... The, the firming will be there, Giles, but uh, it's already clear that new wind and solar, well, at least the new wind can't... Put, the Arana Zone transmission link just won't be ready in time before Araring uh, closes. I mean... That's the uh, that's the unfortunate fact of life. Uh, we we're going to be relying on uh, projects like Project Energy Connect, which still comes after um, from South Australia, which still comes after a rearing closes, and frankly, a recover rebuild of Calide is uh, is the next big increase in generation that is likely to come, uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully in the sense of electricity supply, bad in terms of carbon, uh, um, yeah. to help New South Wales. Yeah, and I just actually, just just just, just one very um, brief other thing, I do, do notice that the uh, Mick de Brenny, the uh, energy minister, apparently was on estimates, the uh, Queensland equivalent of estimates this week, and apparently revealed that um, Calide C was costing them 
$240 million, $90 million for the re repair and $150 million for lost revenue. Um, not well, sure and you know, uh, one of the other things in the Energy Australia, look, we'll talk all night, but one of the other things in the Energy Australia release was that um, uh, they're spending, I think it is, three or $400 million to keep your lawn going for another three or four years. I mean, that's a lot of capex, you know. Uh, uh, down there on a very short life project. I mean, uh, look, the, the, the pressure remains on everyone, uh, but particularly system planners and the people that are responsible for getting the transmission and the wind farms built and developed, That's uh, and the solar farms, that's what we really need. You can build all the batteries you want uh, if you want to run the whole system on batteries, but we don't. We want to run it on cheap bulk energy and we need to get it built. Good point there, David. I think that's a nice way to win the podcast. Thanks to you. Um, thanks to all our listeners out there. Thanks in particular for David Roberts for spending the time with us. Um, and good luck with his trip in Australia. Um, we'll be back again. No, thanks to our sponsors, of course, Evergen and Pylon, um, for your ongoing and continued support. And um, we'll be back next week with another episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. Do check out some of the great interviews that are being done on um, our Switched On podcast, which is focusing on electrification, some great ones there this week about how Esperance got off gas within a year um, also um, um, uh, um, Craig Memory from the Public Investment Advisory Centre how to electrify some, some really great stuff so um, check that out and um, that's all for now Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.